Well, the passage on which the sermon is based is Acts chapter 17. Uh, Last week, we left off with Paul in the city of Philippi. Uh, We had baptisms galore, baptism of Lydia and her household, the baptism of the jailer and his household. We looked at profiles of three very different people who end up being early Christians. Uh, Next, from Philippi, he travels to Thessalonica. Then he heads to Berea. Both of those are cities in northern Greece. After kind of getting run out of those two cities, he finally comes to such a significant city. I mean, the great city of Athens, which is the fountainhead of Western philosophy. You'd have to describe it as the intellectual capital of the world. I mean, at this point in human history, it's in somewhat decline. And nevertheless, I mean, Athens is Athens. Big deal. So picture behind me is the site of where Paul gives this famous speech in Acts 17. This is the Areopagus, the, uh, the uh, hill of Ares, Areopagus. Uh, so the Ares is the Greek god of war. Um, Mars was the name of the Roman god of war, and so sometimes the hill of Ares, the Areopagus, is also referred to as Mars Hill, and that's where we get that, that name. Um, there was a council that met at the Areopagus, whose job was to deal with matters of ethics, religion, and philosophy. And this council was significant because centuries earlier, you may recall, uh, Socrates was called before the council and accused of undermining faith in the Athenian gods. And and Socrates, Plato records Socrates, a great defense of, against the charges. And uh, I forget, I think it's actually called the defense of of Socrates. Plato records it. He's found guilty. He's forced to drink hemlock. He is, you know, death by poisoning. The reason I mention it, other than the fact that it's kind of like nerd cool, is that there are echoes of Socrates in Paul's speech here. As he is giving his defense before the council, uh, the Areopagus, both of the men started their speeches with the words, people of Athens or men of Athens, um, both Paul and Socrates, Both of them were accused of, quote, advocating for foreign or strange deities. And then both of them were known for their new teachings. They're being charged with coming in and disturbing the peace and teaching new things. And so there's, uh, it seems like Luke is aware of that. And he's writing it in such a way to capture those echoes, um, Socrates and Paul. The the speech that we have here, you've got to say, is a master class of engagement. Um, he's speaking in the shadow of the, the Parthenon. I've never, so I've never gone to Athens. Anybody here ever made the trek? I have not, but I have been to the, the life-size replica of the Parthenon that is located in Nashville. So if you ever go to Nashville, Tennessee, you can walk around and inside the Parthenon. And it's, I mean, it, it, one of the greatest architectural achievements ever. So I have seen it there. Paul is speaking to the cultural elites of his day. Now, how does he basically make his argument? That's what we're going to look at. Whenever he's talking with his fellow Jews, the way that he makes his argument is from the Bible. (laughs) He's always quoting the Bible. But here, when he speaks to an audience that knows nothing about the Bible, you'll notice that he doesn't even quote the Bible in the entire speech. Instead, he quotes from their own poets, and he makes references to like their own culture and their own art. And what I think we have here is a, a master class of bridge building, finding common ground um, in order to provide a, you know, a compelling cultural argument for 
Jesus and his resurrection. So let's read, beginning in verse 16 through verse 32. While Paul was waiting for them, his, his companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and Greeks, Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Well, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, which are where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. You know, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, uh, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Okay, so what I, what I want you to see as we start out here is, you know, Paul is not standing on the street corner, you know, street preaching, you know, yelling at the top of his voice, you're all going to hell. He's not doing that. And he's not down on Mill Avenue, uh, passing out religious tracts that have lots of Bible in them that use lots of words that would be utterly foreign to most ASU students, like sin and transgression and, you know, quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes, um, hell and judgment. No, he's not doing that. And, and he's not on Facebook trying to evangelize his Facebook friends by, you know, the latest posts. When he deals with people of a, of a, a very different worldview, a worldview that is radically different than his own, he doesn't start by preaching, this is what the Bible says. He doesn't even use the Bible. Instead, what does he do? Number one, he communicates the good news in a way that's consistent with common grace. Common grace. So that's the term that we use in theology. It's not my favorite descriptor, and I, to be honest, I don't, I don't know that that's the best way of uh, describing it, but common grace is basically the belief that God gives to every culture and to every human being some wisdom and insight into the truth. Like, 
Everybody, everybody has some insight into capital T truth. Um, Like on one hand, yes, every culture is idolatrous. Every culture is going to take the good gifts of God and turn them into ultimate things and make idols out of them. But on the other hand, every culture is also going to be tapped into real truth, real goodness, and real beauty. It'll have all of that in it. And so common grace is is the thing that God uses to restrain the darkness of, our, uh, of this world. So notice how Paul immerses himself in their worldview. Uh, he, he dives into their worldview in order that he might, you might say, um, provide a sympathetic internal critique. Um, a critique that recognizes the good parts of what's there, even in a pagan and idolatrous worldview, but also, you know, helps to try and correct some of its glaring deficiencies. Well, how does he do that? Well, first off, he walks around the city, and he pays attention to all of the public art of the city. Um, he walks by the sculptures, and the frescoes, and the temples, which uh, would probably have been, like, fairly scandalous for an observant Jew. If you've, if you've gone in even to a museum that has ancient uh, Greco-Roman art, I mean, it's sometimes borderline pornographic. But he's taking all the sites of the city in. Like, he like, given the distressing parts of the city. He's taking it all in, um, in an altar. There's this altar that catches his eye. On it is an inscription that reads, To an unknown God. Why would somebody, why would somebody build an altar to an unknown God? Well, you have to understand this, that the Greek and Roman gods were not gods that you adored so much as they were gods that you pacified. You know, uh, you appeased. Like, you know, you sacrificed to Poseidon before you head out on your trip, your voyage across the ocean, you know, to, to make sure that you would have a safe journey. Um, and so we don't know precisely why this altar was made, but we can assume that, like, somebody must have just thought, well, in order to be on the safe side of things, if there's a God up there who I need to make sure that I'm on his good side, I need to appease, well, then here, you know, here's my sacrifice. It's like covering all of, covering all of your bases. yes. That's idolatrous. <laughs> and yet, Paul recognizes that it, it also communicates like a real and true impulse of the heart. Like, namely, the impulse that uh, we don't know everything. We, it recognizes self-reflective ignorance. And it's that self-reflective ignorance that Paul dives into and says, hey, let me tell you more because I know something more here. So, a, a question I'd want to ask you is this, and I guess it's rhetorical, but why, would we see a pagan altar the same way Paul saw it? Would we? Would we look at public art, scandalous art, the, the same way Paul saw it as a bridge? Or would we just be repulsed by it because it's evil and it's distressing and it's idolatrous, or it's just not worthy of my attention? The second uh, common grace connection that Paul makes is and you saw it maybe as you're reading the words up on the screen, there are two quotations. He quotes two Greek poets. The first of them is Aratus. He is a third century BC Stoic philosopher. And the second is Epimenides, a sixth century Cretan philosopher. And it's that second one where you remember he says, in him we live and move and have our being. That He's quoting 
he's quoting Epimenides there. I forget the verse. Sorry, I don't have the verse. But you know what's crazy about that quotation? In him, we live and move and have our being. Who do you think the him is a reference to in the original, in the original poem? Would you guess that it's actually Zeus? <laughs> it's a, a paean of praise to Zeus that Paul is here quoting somewhat approvingly and saying like, hey, he's on to something here, on to something that is, is, is somewhat true. Um, would we read, here's my second question, would we read the Greek poets the same way that he read them? In other words, would we reread their literature and look for the things that they got right? Because it's, it's really easy to find out the things that other people get wrong. <laughs> but would we look for the things that they actually got right? And sadly, you know, based on you know, my experience as a pastor and my experience growing up in the church, the cultural posture that many of us were trained with was just the exact opposite of this, right? It was not common grace based. We were taught much more along the lines of fundamentalism, where where the world is distressing, avoid it. Where the culture is wrong, despise it. Um, Where the culture is gross, avoid contamination at all costs. And then if the culture just keeps getting worse and worse, well, then retreat into your own little Christian enclave where you can be safe and sound. And that was the cultural posture that many American Christians were, were, were taught. What's my point of bringing this up to you? I mean, the Lord knows that I'm not, I'm not trying to make us into these, like, great cultural critics. Because um, I'm not a great cultural critic. I, I don't read sophisticated literature. I, I don't have a subscription to The Economist. Um, I'm not a film or art critic. My goal in pointing out how Paul did this was just to help us maybe shift our instincts a little bit more. I mean, he took time to understand Athenian culture, its language, its beliefs, its heroes, its aspirations. And I think that we can, at the very least, take some time to try and look and find what is good in in the idolatrous culture that we live in (laughs) and to look for what they get right, uh, to search for bridges, uh, to search for the common ground, that we may share with those who don't hold to our worldview, and, and to basically build bridges of common grace through truth, goodness, and beauty that already exist. So that's point number one. Oh, well, and to summarize it, is this. Paul's message at the Areopagus was simply, you've been humming God's tune, you're missing some of the words. And, and by God's grace, uh, I'm here to, to tell you, to teach you some of the actual words to the song. And the song that he ends up singing is the song of resurrection. Because that's where his, his speech goes, is resurrection. More on that in a minute. Okay, secondly, uh, let's look briefly at the, the content of his message, beginning in verse 24, where we read um, these words. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. You know what's interesting, most interesting about this statement? Um, he's talking about, like, the high God, and, and we obviously know that the high God is a creator God. And if you, if you were to talk with maybe one of your neighbors, somebody who isn't a Christian, uh, and you said, well, there is a God, what do you think that God is like? 
they're probably going to say that, believe that that God is himself a creator. They'd assume that God is creator. What's amazing is that was certainly not the assumption of, of the Greeks, you know, because it, the understanding of ancient Greek philosophy, for them, the high God was too high to be involved in something so dirty as to create, you know, heavens and earth and especially human beings who would live in it. He, the high God in Greco-Roman, or ancient Greek philosophy, rather, uh, delegated the creating um, to this other you know, kind of character called the Demiurge, you know, uh, he delegated that role because, you know, like forming humanity, being concerned about dirty humanity, that is way beneath the high God. Um, for them, the high God is pure thought, is pure logic, is pure thinking, who wouldn't be disturbed by something specific like a human being. And so isn't it interesting here, here the, the one of the first thing Paul says to them is that, no, no, like he's challenging them to believe that, no, the high God is actually the creator who has made everything. And so he challenges them on that first point. Then verses 25 and 26, he goes on. He says, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For the one man, I'm sorry, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. So what is he saying here? He's saying, He's saying that God, the creator, is sovereign over ev- everything. Not only has he made all the nations, but he's marked out their appointed times in history. He's marked out the boundaries of their lands, which means that like everything that happens in human history is under his control. Now, in order to show this, he quotes Epimenides, and he says, like, basically, in your own writings, some of your own thinkers have thought of a God like this, a God who upholds every, every one of us in every second, for in him we live and move and have our being. And so, like, he's trying to use their cultural capital as a way of proving that uh, that's actually true. Then we get to verse 27, and I'd have to say verse 27 is my favorite part of the entire speech. It, it's almost a throwaway line, but it's so, it's such a wonderful uh, line. He, he, he goes on and says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. When I first read it, the passage, did you catch that? That statement, God is not far He's not, he's not far away. And yet, like when we are running away from God, it, like the prodigal son in the parable of the prodigal, it, the assumption is like when we're running from God, we're getting further and further and further away from him. There's a, there's a place where one of the great Christian thinkers of all time, Augustine, uh, he was describing his own his own fleeing God, his journey away from God. And for Augustine, the way he ran from God was through sexual escapades. Um, lots and lots of uh, sexual liaisons. And, and he writes this somewhere, and I couldn't find exactly where it was, but uh, somewhere in, in his confessions, where he says along the lines of something like this, like, I was running from God with all my light, with all my might, um, living my own life, um, chasing after sex, getting further and further away from God. And when I stopped and I turned, behold, he was right there in front of my face. (laughs) 
When I stopped, he was right there in front of my face. And I think a lot of us have this feeling, like uh, I know at times I have, feeling like I just messed my life up too much. I've drifted so far away. The distance between me and God is a million miles away. And it would be so hard for me to to get back there, to, to go back there. To which Paul says, that's a load of, that's a load of hooey. He's not far away. He's, he's not far away from any of us. I mean, we live in his story. Therefore, it is impossible to be far away from him. I know when it, sometimes I'll invite some of my neighbors to come to church, and they've had some Christian background, um, but they kind of, you know, strayed away. They're like, ah, oh, I just, you know, I, 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 I couldn't. It's just, it's just too much. I've, I've gone too far. No, not at all. I love these words of a monk. He said that the spiritual journey is not a success story. It is a series of humiliations of the false self that become more and more profound. These humiliations make room inside of us for the Holy Spirit to come in and heal. And then here it is. Every now and then, God lifts a corner of the veil and enters into our awareness through various channels, as if to say, here I am. Where are you? Come and join me. Okay, let me jump to one more point, and then I'll say something briefly about the resurrection to to close. If we go back to the beginning of the speech, he starts out by saying, hey, um, you know, you guys are really religious. I, I see all of you, you know, all you Athenians, you're, you're fairly religious. If you were to say that, I keep bringing our neighbors into the sermon a lot, but if you were to say that to your neighbor, what, what would they say? I see that you're, are you very religious? The majority of our neighbors today would be like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm not into that stuff. I believe in reason. I believe in science. I'm not in, I'm not into religious, but actually Paul's on to something here, because the fact of the matter is, everybody is religious, like everyone, not just the men of Athens, like modern secular people are too, we, the problem is that secularism just creates a veil over our eyes, where we don't realize that we are making tons of non-provable, value-laden judgments on a whole host of things in this life that that just seem perfectly reasonable to us but but they're but they're they're really fairly religious i mean here's an example of it like uh i think it was a russian philosopher who said this man descended from apes therefore let us love one another you're supposed to you're supposed to chuckle at that because it is it's meant to be a joke because there is no therefore like Right? There's no therefore. Man descended from, descended from apes. If all we are is a product of the survival of the fittest, then why should we love one another? Oh, well, well, just because we should. Well, why? Well, it seems like the nice thing to do. Well, fine, but that's every bit as much of a leap of faith as anybody who says, well, God tells us to, to love one another. Um, see, the thing is, nobody can operate without some form of faith and religious belief. It's impossible. Now, modern secular people um, don't realize it, but they are every bit as reliant on unprovable beliefs as anybody else. I'll give you another example. So here we have pictured um, an Anglo-Saxon warrior 
from, say, 800 AD in Britain. Now, I want you to imagine in this thought experiment that this Anglo-Saxon warrior, um, he feels the impulse to destroy anyone who disrespects him. Because, I mean, that's how, that's how we roll as, a, as an Anglo-Saxon warrior, right? That's what his culture demands, because he grows up in an honor-shame culture, and so he's going to be absolutely brutal if he's disrespected. Now, what I want you to imagine is that this, this warrior also happens to feel sexually attracted to other men. But, you know, he's not going to express that, most likely, in 800 AD Britain, because, you know, he's expected in his culture to suppress those desires. Well, take another guy um, by comparison. Uh, let's say we have a man of the same age who uh, is walking down the streets of Old Town Scottsdale, and in the case of this new man, he feels just like the Anglo-Saxon warrior. He wants to kill anyone who looks at him the wrong way. Um, and he, too, feels sexual desire and, uh, and to have sexual relations with other men. How, do we, how would we evaluate that new man today in Old Town Scottsdale? Well, I mean, we're going to send him to counseling for anger management, <laughs> But we're also going to tell him to press into his sexual desires and, and embrace that as his true identity, you know, that orientation. My point is that even in a secular environment, the way we determine what is right or what is wrong, what is ethical, what is unethical, is not simply by looking inside of us and saying, how do I feel about this? Because I may feel murderous rage, and I ought not to act on it. No, no, what happens is we receive, we receive some interpretive moral grid from the outside of us. And we lay that grid down over our various feelings and our impulses. And we sift through them. Um, and in that way, we determine what is right and wrong. But it's, it's the grid that helps us decide which feelings are me and which feelings should be expressed and which feelings should not be express. And so where does that Anglo-Saxon warrior get his grid? Well, the same place that the, the old town Scottsdale guy gets his grid, largely from our surrounding culture and from our communities and from our, the stories of our cultures. And so my point again is that even a secular person who doesn't do faith and religion is still using some standard or rule from outside of them to help them you know, sort out the various impulses of their interior life. Like, nobody simply chooses to, to be themselves. They're choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. Um, and so that, in that same respect, they are, you know, filtering their feelings. They're jettisoning some feelings, embracing some other feelings. And that whole process, friends, is fundamentally religious. <laughs> It's fundamentally, it's not like you can prove those grids, you know, somewhere in a laboratory test tube. No, everybody's religious. So, you know, Western secular people have a tendency to say, why doesn't everybody else think the way we think? You know, it's just reason and science we rely on. No, it's not. Like, we are living our lives on the basis of faith beliefs that are no more empirically based than the religious beliefs of, say, a Muslim man or woman in the Middle East. And so, you know, I think that if we could get our, our culture to just a greater level of self-awareness, that, that, oh yeah, we're all doing this, like a level of self-reflection would at a minimum help make our ultimate conversations a, a whole lot you know, kinder and more understanding. 
you know. It would make for, I think, a more understanding society because we'd all recognize that we're working from a religious point of view, even those of us who are not religious. Okay, so finally, uh, Paul starts with the self-reflective ignorance, and then he brings the story back, and he says, now we are living at a new moment in human history, a moment when the times of ignorance have come to an end. Like, previously, people could hardly be expected to know what God was and what God was doing, but now a new thing has happened. And what is that new thing? Verses 31, 30 and 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. How do we know that Jesus Christ is the coming judge? Because, Paul says, God raised him from the dead. Um, and it is the resurrection that makes Jesus the, the uniquely appointed judge of, of all things. Um, I'm out of time. I know I've gone pretty long already. We talked about the resurrection quite a bit, you know, in this Easter season. Um, I'll just say that the resurrection brings tremendous hope, uh, tremendous hope, because with the resurrection of Jesus, God's new world has begun. In other words, his being raised from the dead is the start, the beginning of that great setting to right, which God will do for the whole universe at the end of time. The risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set to right. And Jesus is therefore the one through whom everything else will be set to right. So he says the challenge is for you to repent, to, to turn back from your ways, and to turn to the living God. Now, he doesn't even get to finish his sermon, you notice. As soon as he gets to the point where he talks, start talking about resurrection, did you notice how they re respond to him? They start laughing at him. They're like, no way, resurrection. Like, who, how could anyone be expected to believe such rubbish? But if you continue reading in the story, in fact, a few people do. I think there's one guy, like, uh, oh, Dionysius, the Areopagite, he ends up um, becoming a believer, and, and a few others become a, a, few, a believer um, after hearing him. So to summarize, uh, I'm done. Um, you know, he's speaking in the shadow of the Parthenon, and it's a master class of engagement. Like, he, he builds bridges through common grace. He helps them to see that God is not far away. He is near. He acknowledges that every one of us is religious. Every one of us is, is aching, absolutely aching, to live for something bigger than money, sex, and, and power, which is what our culture gives us. Um, something that's more lasting than achievement or the perfect body or the perfect house, or any of that. You know, many people today feel so adrift. They're without direction, and they want to live for something big and beautiful, and that is what is provided through the resurrection of the Son of God, something big enough to be described as a brand new world, <laughs> a new universe. And that's what uh, we get to share with our friends. Um, maybe God will lead you into conversation with a neighbor where you can uh, be listening for the truth, goodness, and beauty that, that, that's already present, and you can ultimately say to them um, what, we, what Paul said to, at, the, uh, at the Areopagus, that you're humming God's tune, let me um, now teach you the words to the song. Amen.